Good morning. I am Eric, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. I get to serve as the youth pastor here. If you need a Bible, would you slip your hand up and our ushers will try to get you one. If you don't end up getting one, just put your hand down and the service will be over shortly. Um, So almost every Sunday at 9.30 and 11, our youth team leads a time of worship for middle school and high school kids upstairs. It's happening right now. We finish the service by splitting them up, middle schoolers and high schoolers, into their teaching times uh, for scripture. So if you know a middle school student uh, or a high school student, we'd encourage you to uh, encourage them to join us. We'd love to have them. And I say we do it almost every week because the first Sunday of every month, you may have seen, we join you guys in here because we like to be reminded that we're a family. So we'll see you guys in here the first Sunday in November. So uh, the series we're in has us handling a sermon of Jesus that... It can't be taken lightly. And sometimes the simplicity of the sermon tempts us to think that Jesus' teaching is easy. But quickly, as you begin reading it, you, you recognize, oh my goodness, this is really hard. Uh, but take it easy because the difficulty of Jesus' words gets eclipsed by its beauty because what it does is it captures the heart of God. And even though it's beautiful, Not many people like the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, C.S. Lewis was one of those people who didn't like the Sermon on the Mount. In his book, God in the Dock, he mentions a conversation he had with a guy who asked him if he cared for the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he said. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read this passage with tranquil pleasure. What Jesus is doing in this sermon is issuing a decree to the citizens of the kingdom of God. And it, when it comes out, it smashes against our world's mentality and against how our sinful hearts normally respond. And it hits like a sledgehammer. What I'm praying for this morning is that the Holy Spirit would chisel away at our hearts and that he would chisel away in our hearts this week during our growth groups, that he would help us to to receive and help us to obey and work out what Jesus is calling those who follow him to do, which is going to run right up against how our world works and how our hearts normally lean. Because both our world and our own minds by themselves run backwards and away from Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5. There's a church in Boston called Grace Chapel, and the pastor Brian Wilkerson came up with a list of Beatitudes that might be the ones that we would read if our culture wrote them instead of Jesus. If our culture came up with a list of Beatitudes, or our own hearts came up with a list, and I thought we should start with this. Blessed are the rich and famous because they can always get a seat at the best restaurants. (laughs) Blessed are the good-looking, for they shall be on the cover of People magazine. Blessed are those who party, for they know how to have fun. Blessed are those who take first place in the division, for they shall have momentum going into the playoffs. Blessed are the movers and shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are those who demand their rights, for they shall not be overlooked. Blessed are the healthy and fit, because they don't mind being seen in a bathing suit. Blessed are those who make it to the top because they get to look down on everyone else. 
If it weren't so funny, it'd be a little bit sad, but (laughs) that's a picture of our hearts, right? Without Christ. And as Jesus began this sermon, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago, he really pulls the rug out from under us, and he lays us bare when he says that the poor in spirit are blessed. Because instead of arrogance and power and beauty, Jesus said his disciples need to begin by admitting their spiritual poverty, that their absolute and total dependence on Christ. Then he went on and he told the crowd and he preached that those who mourn are blessed. In Jesus' kingdom, he says, the citizens will not chase joy the way the citizens of this world do because contentment isn't achieved through selfishness or positive thinking or blaming, but true joy is found when they're broken over their sin and begin to revel in the grace of God in Christ that shows them mercy. Then Jesus followed it up with the gentle are blessed. Now our world tells us be aggressive, be assertive, fight for your rights. But in Jesus' kingdom, because of the value and standing his citizens have due to their forgiven sin, they can operate like Jesus did, humbly, softly, and instead of demanding their way through life, they can joyfully love and serve their way through life. Instead of defending themselves with a sharp tongue, they can rest confidently in the grace and love poured out on them in Christ. Now this morning, we're going to be taking a deeper look at Matthew 6 to 9. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Now, as the smartest person that's ever lived, Jesus is a good teacher. And one of the things good teachers know is their audience. Jesus knew his audience well. And this particular crowd listening to him in the desert on that day would have been unused to the things that you and I are used to, like refrigeration, Costco, fast food, bottled water. Those people had a daily struggle, a life and death struggle to find water perhaps or to have their bellies full. They would have known what it was like to go two days without food. You and I are very removed from this problem. In fact, our struggle is dealing with the problem of too much food or the problem of which boutique water to buy, whether it has electrolytes or not. But Jesus is going to borrow from the natural urge that's inside of all of them and us, and he's going to repurpose it for the eternal, saying what amounts to, if you are my disciple, your hunger and your thirst for food should take a back seat should be dominated by a spiritual hunger, a spiritual thirst for the way and the rule of God. In this particular statement about hungering and thirst for righteousness, Jesus is describing what his followers should now want and how they should want it. And what they should want is righteousness, which is really chasing after God's authority, preferring God's word, choosing his way, It's to obey Jesus, like he goes on to say in Matthew 6, to seek first the kingdom of God over everything else in your life. Righteousness is the life that lines up with the character of God 
as revealed in Christ and shown in his word. That's what citizens of this kingdom should want. And how they should want it is extreme. It's like facing the brink of starvation and somebody says, would you like a warm bagel? What would you do for it? In that moment, you and I would do anything, even if you're gluten-free. We would do anything. And Jesus is saying, that is how citizens of heaven should yearn for God's rule in their life. Jesus, I will do anything to make choices that line up with your heart and your word. Jesus, I need that. I have to do it to fill this deep, deep need I have. The psalmist said it like this in chapter 42, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. And in chapter 63, he wrote, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate and without water. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness should be the number one quest for a follower of Christ. Number one which causes us to get scared because a lot of us deal with not wanting to have a desire for Christ. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur has remarked about this. He said, if you claim a relationship in Christ, but you aren't hungry and thirsting for righteousness, you need to honestly question whether you know him. This is scary. We all struggle at times with the desire to do what's right, to do what would honor God because we frankly lack the desire. Some of us get hung up. Uh, last weekend, I was driving over by Saddleback Mountain on a back road, and I almost hit a deer that was laying across the lanes. It was still breathing its last, but it had just been hit. It made me think about the old adage, a deer in headlights, right? Because <laughs> sometimes we get hung up. We, we look in, into God's law, we look into God's way, and we know we should do it, but we're, we're paused. I know I should do it, but we're waiting for our desires to change. And if it ends poorly for the deer who's looking in the headlights, it ends poorly for us if we wait for our desires to change. Uh, while preparing our growth group material this week, Pastor Derek was thinking about this, and he said something that I thought you guys should know. He said, sometimes to develop a greater hunger for what's good, we have to change our diet even before our taste buds change. What he's saying is the citizens of God's kingdom need to trust God so much that they're willing to set aside prioritizing their own feelings and believe that God's ways are higher and better and smarter and wiser than their own. And to obey God's way, to, to desire it knowing that it's better than what they want. But boy, do we twist and fight with God in our minds at times. I'm thinking about trying to get my daughter into an outfit she doesn't want to wear. And little kids, when they don't want to wear something, they will become as stiff or limp or twisty because their bodies are just demonstrating their rebellion, right? And Christ's death on the cross offers to us a gift that needs to change our hearts of rebellion, willing to obey God's law, and then actually desire God's law, knowing that it's good. And as Jesus has promised us, if we'll hunger and thirst for this righteousness of God, we'll find a blessing that can't be found in this world. We'll find contentment. We'll be filled, he says. And God's been promising his people this for generations. He says to his people, trust me, follow me, don't look at this world. 
I will give you a satisfaction that this world doesn't know. Isaiah 58, the Lord will always lead you, satisfy you in a parched land and strengthen your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring whose waters never run dry. Jeremiah 31, for I satisfy the thirsty person and feed all those who are weak. Our world is searching for satisfaction. And no matter how much money, no matter how much beauty, no matter how much power, people aren't finding satisfaction. And some of us have been those rebellious kids whose parents told them to get dressed in the clothes they don't want to wear. And we're putting them on externally. We're doing what God wants, but in our hearts, we're mad about it. We aren't happy in our obedience because we think Jesus is taking from us when really Jesus is fighting for our joy. Philip Holmes is a staff writer for Desiring God, and he wrote this. As children, we thought it might be a bag of potato chips we begged our parents for at the store or that new bike, video game, or doll we wanted for Christmas. We thought that would make us happy, but they didn't. As teens, we sought satisfaction and good grades, athletic accomplishments, a car, or significant others, but all of it left us discontent. As adults, we think that a bigger house, more or less children, or a better job will quench our thirst, but we're still left wanting more. So let's Let's believe in Jesus this morning. Let's believe him that a longing for and a walking the righteous path God has laid out for his children will lead to their joy, their satisfaction, their filling, and their contentment. Because King Jesus and his kingdom rule holds the keys to our joy and our satisfaction and our filling. Psalm 107, he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. You reveal to me the path of life. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. And listen to Jesus from chapter 6 of John. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. As we move through verses 7, 8, and 9, we're going to see that each one of these mercy, purity of heart, and being a peacemaker are really behaviors or attitudes that are an overflow of a heart that hungers and thirsts for God and his righteous way. The merciful are blessed, Jesus says, for they will be shown mercy. Now, growing up, I I heard this saying, which is, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And as sinful people who've rebelled against a holy God, we deserve his wrath. We deserve the punishment. Yet Jesus offers mercy to anyone who'll surrender to his lordship. He offers to take away the punishment we deserve by taking it on himself. And this should cause us to desire to take away the pain and the suffering of others, even if they are hurting us. John Piper has said, mercy comes from mercy. So in a sense, we give it away, we give mercy away because we've been given it. We extend to others the same mercy that's been poured out on us. Here's the thing, when people hurt us and when they don't deserve love, that's precisely when the mercy of God that's come to us needs to go to them. Mercy comes from mercy. 
Now, Jesus gives us an example of what not to do in Matthew chapter 18. And it's a little, it's a little heavy, so I'm glad you're sitting down. Remember, this is an example of what not to do. Matthew 18, 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, the one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. And since he didn't have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down and said, be patient with me, I will pay you everything. Then the master of the servant had compassion, released him, and forgave the loan. That servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. After he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from his heart. Jesus is saying mercy is a big deal. But that's us in this story when we refuse to show mercy to those in our lives. If we do that, we end up minimizing and ridiculing the exorbitant mercy shown to us in our deepest need. Now let's flip the coin over and have Jesus show us mercy as it should be. It's costly, just a forewarning. It's painful. It's dirty when we show mercy. But it's beautifully reminiscent of the mercy we've been given if you've received and surrendered King Jesus. From Luke 10, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the man, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Uh, the one who showed mercy to him? Jesus said, go and do the same. See, this Samaritan in Jesus' story was politically incorrect. 
he stomped on every social moray of the time. And he was, in this story, he is a hero who humiliates the religiously pious. And Jesus, Jesus pushes this guy to the center stage saying, this unlikely guy that you'd never think would be a hero is a hero because he's doing what nobody else would. This half-breed Jew does what the religious elite won't. A man hated by the Jews for being racially mixed cares for the needs of a Jew who culturally would have hated him. This Samaritan man spends his own time, his own money, his own goods, even though the Jews hated Samaritans. And Jesus is saying, this is a picture of mercy. Citizens of Christ's kingdom will extend mercy to those in their lives of all types, those who deserve it and those who don't. Every one of us has people in our lives who've hurt us and who don't deserve mercy. But you and I don't deserve the mercy that Christ has given us. That's why mercy is to come from mercy. In verse 8, we see that the pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. A dark heart, a wayward heart, a deceptive heart, a cheating heart. A lot of different ways to go with what sounds like a country song. But when we dig down to the bottom of what it means to have a pure heart, to have godly integrity, it's about maybe a single-minded heart that's set in one direction and doesn't waver, so our behaviors and words don't switch back and forth as the situation changes, but that from our heart of hearts we will think and speak and feel what is right and good and God-honoring. And that means if you are a citizen of heaven, you should be known in your home, your workplace, or your friend circles as an honest person who can be trusted. That's why we needed to be devoted to God's word, even on days that aren't Sunday, so we can be reminded daily what is pure, what honors God. Uh, author Peter Kreeft in his book, Back to Virtue, wrote this, a pure will loves God with the whole heart and soul and mind. It's fanatical. The greatest insult the modern mind can conceive and the greatest compliment God can give. It's also the greatest compliment a lover can give. I love you with my whole heart and soul. My love is not divided. You have no rival. Citizens of heaven will seek a purified heart that can glimpse just a little what David did when he prayed. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It's what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. In verse 9, we find out that peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Like father, like son, chip off the old block, spit an image of your dad, pick yours. Jesus would call those who follow him to do likewise, to follow his example, to follow the father's example of making peace. According to Romans 5, we have peace with God through Jesus. According to Isaiah 9, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Paul said in Ephesians 2, Jesus has brought peace between the Jew and the Gentile and then made peace between both of those groups and God. And Jesus, in his generosity, offers peace as a gift. In chapter 14 of John, we read, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you like the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. We are very rich in the peace department. But what are we going to do with all that peace? Just keep it? 
Maybe, or maybe not. Because Jesus is compelling us to seek out peace in response to the peace we've been gifted with actively. One commentator said that Christian peacemakers are to actively and relentlessly pursue justice, harmony, repentance, and reconciliation. And that is a big job. And we serve a big God. And just so you don't think that this job is just for pastors and missionaries and special Christians, I want you to get a reminder that if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, I want to show you what is on your business card from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Citizens of heaven will seek peace by proclaiming, by applying the gospel, by sharing truth, and by helping apply the good news to every conflict, every situation in their path. There's a guy named David Naves at Ligonier Ministries, and he summarized peacemaking the peacemaking Jesus well, and what you and I can expect if we follow in his footsteps. He said peacemaking, his peacemaking, earned him the hatred of religious leaders and the derision of his family. His peacemaking led him to a garden, not for quiet repose, but for midnight wrestling, not for cool refreshment, but an overflowing cup of almighty wrath. His peacemaking led him to a cross. It led him to outer darkness. It also led him to a crown, a throne, and a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is the lot of peacemakers. Their bodies are scarred, and they have been despised, but their harvest is full, and their title is no cause for shame. They shall be called sons of God. The one and only God who is holy made you and I in his image, and he made us to know him. But we've sinned and we've cut ourselves off from him. In his love, God sent his son Jesus to come as king and to rescue his people from their enemies, most significantly themselves. Jesus established his kingdom by acting both as a mediating priest and a priestly sacrifice. He lived a perfect life and died on the cross, fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of many. And then he rose again, showing that God accepted his sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted. And he now calls on any of us, all of us, to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. And if we do repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life and a new kingdom where Jesus is king. And anyone can have that, no matter your past. Anyone can repent and submit to King Jesus Anyone can become a citizen of this kingdom. And when we do, if you do, you'll need Jesus so much that you're willing to set aside your own feelings and truly believe 
that God's ways are higher and better and smarter and wiser than our own. And to obey, to follow God's law, his word and his way, to desire it, to hunger for it. Why? It's the only hunger that can satisfy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need what you offer, which is forgiveness, which is mercy. You offer us what this world cannot, which is satisfaction and joy, true and lasting satisfaction and joy that can be ours whether things are going good or bad, whether this world is treating us kindly or not. Help us to find our satisfaction in you this morning, and may you transform our church because of it. In Jesus' name.